Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Julie Moncrief Anthony, knee lush, was born on a farm at Galga, South Australia. The population of the location was 15, and by necessity cultivated a vivid imagination in young Julie and a talent to amuse. She began singing in her teens with a local band, an engagement instigated by her enthusiastic father. In 1970, Julie won a television talent quest, which led to regular appearances on Ernie Sigley's Adelaide Tonight. She moved to Sydney, making television appearances and performing on the club and cabaret circuit, eventually extending her music making to international tours. And so cemented her presence as our preeminent vocalist on television and stages around the nation. She was Irene O'Dare in the musical Irene for J.C. Williamson's and in the West End. She joined the Renewed Seekers for a period and she has led Australians in our Advance Australia Fair at a myriad of official and sporting events. Indeed, her voice is synonymous with the national anthem. Julie Anthony has won Australia's prestigious Mo Award for Entertainer of the Year three times and Best Female Variety Performer nine times. Now retired, her voice is missed, but fortunately for us, it can be accessed through Julie's extensive recording output. So why retirement? And what were some of the highlights and challenges of her distinguished career? Stages visited Ms. Anthony at her home in Queensland, and we discussed all over a cuppa and some exquisite homemade biscuits. Julie Anthony, how lovely to be in your kitchen. It's lovely to have you in my kitchen, Peter. But eating your homemade goods. Oh, spice cookies. I'm famous for them. Yeah. Mm. Is it a secret recipe? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's a piece of paper that tells me where to go. I can never remember recipes. I'm not an avid cook. So you improvise? I do, a bit. Yeah. Mm. When I get the hang of it, I throw other things in just to see what happens. Mostly it's all right. <laughs> you can get, you know, if you don't sort of uh, worry about it too much. No, it tastes, tastes good. They're crunch. He goes, cr- he's crunching. Crunching. Oh, I'm going to hear that in the <laughs> I'll have to. <laughs> I thought it was a soft cookie. See, I've got you into real trouble here, haven't I? No, that's great. I'll, I'll dunk. You'll dunk. Mm. All right, you All dunk. Right. We'll, and there, we'll there's a skill dunk. to dunking as well, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Because when it goes plummeting to the bottom of the cup, that's it. So there's really. something you've got to know how it's many... It's irretrievable. How many seconds? Mm. <laughs> you've got to be quick. Mm. Maybe not while we're doing this. We'll yeah. dunk afterwards. Um, thanks to our mutual mate, Simon Gallagher, yes. that, that we're having this chat. Mm. Um, you worked with Simon quite a bit, didn't you? Oh, a lot, yeah. yes. We yeah. were a, the three musketeers, Simon and I and Kevin Hocking. Um, it was one of those... There's moments, I think, Peter, when you meet people... And you're like-minded and 
Simon and I are very vocally uh, alike in a way. Well, he spoke, he spoke to me last night. He said that, you know, when you were singing, mm. you would harmonise and, yes. and, and blend and the audience would often not know who was singing what line. No, we didn't either. <laughs> well, we could switch around and change lines mid-flight mm. and even Kevin would say, who took the high, did you take the high part in the second half of that? And I'd say, yes. And he'd go, oh, gosh, I thought Simon was doing it for a while. You know, that, uh, he couldn't tell. Mm. No, so we had that, also that thread. We could look at one another and... and have a conversation while we were singing and away we go. Yeah. Very lucky when you come across that. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. I was so confused Feeling like I'd just been used Then you came to me And my loneliness left me I used to think I was tied to a heartache That was the heartbreak but now spoke about um, just earlier when we were talking about uh, working with Barry Crocker as well mm. and that was a, a wonderful blend of voices. Oh also. absolutely, um, not like voices, different voices altogether but we also had that connection. Um, Barry and I worked together from very early on in my career I met him because he, we, were, we were with the same agency and so therefore we'd get on the same bill on various things and he'd watch me and he'd come and plonk him down, down alongside and he'd say you know, that's good. You always look nice. It's good to look nice. But you sing really well. And I think um, maybe you and I... I'll talk to Tony, the Tony Brady. I'll talk to Tony. We might do some shows together, I think. That'd be good. Would you like to do that? And I think, God, Barry Crocky's asking you, what? Yes? Hmm? Uh, I'd go, yes. <laughs> and so we did. Over many years, we um, were very uh, like-minded in what we wanted to sing and how that should be done. Uh, and very compatible in working. Barry taught me stagecraft. Mm. I put that right down to Barry, because before that I was this little shy thing who stood there and sang, and for my next song I'd like to do. And Barry said, no, 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 come on. But then he would put me in situations on the stage where he would make me get out of the situation, and he'd look at me and say, okay, and he'd just stand there. Um, what are we doing? And I'd have to speak and I'd have to talk to the audience and sometimes he would leave the stage and go and sit in the front row and leave me to it. And I said, you terrible person. And he said, well, but you know, and then we did medleys that were really tricky and he would write dialogue and we'd be doing things, lines. And that's how I learnt with Barry. He just used to throw you in it and he'd uh, always worked with the audience very closely so he'd end up talking to them and bringing me into that and making a situation that I had to go with and get out of it if Crocker wasn't going to get me out of it, you know. And, uh, gee, you learn fast mm -hmm. and it's invaluable. Terrific schooling, learning on the job. Learning on the job. I've always learned on the job and that's that's been the key. Yeah. Mm. Uh, great teachers, you know, Kevin Hocking and Barry Kevin Crocker, um, Tommy Tika. I started with Tommy Tika. When I went to Sydney... Um, my piano teacher in Adelaide recommended me to Tony Brady as an agent. 
So I came over and, and auditioned for Tony, and he said, yeah, that's good, came over to live. I didn't think for very long. I thought, well, I'll have a crack at this and do it maybe for three months and go back to the farm. And Tony said, look, I've got an appointment with somebody I think is going to be really important to you. His name's Tommy Tico, and he's conducting the, audience, the uh, orchestra at Channel 7. I think he was doing the Bob Rogers show. Tommy was already a bit of a legend, and he's, uh, he was wonderful. So we went out and I auditioned for Tommy in, the, in his dressing room in between band, band called Lunch Break. Tommy came in, he was obviously, you know, precious, how do you do, how do you do, nice to meet you, what are you singing? And I gave him a chart of, oh, I've got to be me. And he sat down and he put it up and he said, oh, Christ, triplets. <laughs> Which I came to understand Tommy didn't like triplets. So he sat there going, dum, 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 and I sang it quite loosely. I didn't sing, I don't think I ever sing on the beat. And we started, and then Tommy looked up at me, and he's still playing the triplets, and then he started playing orchestral, and I went with that. And Tommy was off. He was playing this orchestral. And I'd never heard anybody do that before in my life. And I thought, wow. So I just listened and I just made... I went in the middle of it and around it. And we had the best time. At the end of it, he went... And he looked at me and he said, we need to talk. And I said, okay. Thinking, is this good or this bad? And he looked at Tony, he got up, he said, I have to go back to rehearsal, ring me. And that was the beginning of, um, I rang him and he said, you need to come to my house, we need to talk about what you are doing and why you are doing it, all of that. So that was the first of many meetings with Tommy about um, how to approach the business, what to sing. He said, you should always sing male songs, not female songs, because there's no comparison then. Just pick the songs that the males sing. So we always did that. I never sang the latest hit that the latest female singer sang. And he said, uh, and then we will we will make something of that and make it for you. And the medleys he made for me. And we had this wonderful time we would spend together devising... Uh, music that would make you different from somebody else. Uh, so, you know, how lucky can you be? If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to, do it. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it. Well, a great song that I think uh, Tommy was there with you on the ground floor with is the National Anthem. Oh, yes. How did that come about? Because <laughs> I run into so pain. many people. Nobody sings the National Anthem like Julie Anthony. <laughs> Through great pain, Tommy rang me. He says, Vita, I have been uh, asked by the government to do the uh, a, a version of a new. They need. They've asked me to find a new anthem for this country. I love this country, he said. But I've been going through all the archives and looking for things I might be able to use uh, that is that is Australian. And he said they have been. They're very keen on this particular one. And he said you need to 
come out and we've got to see if we can find a way through it. I got there and Tommy was, oh, he was had paper all over his studio and um, Advanced Australia Fair had about 36 verses about cooking old Albion sailing and things. Very old worldy. Yeah. And Tommy would sit there and say, oh, Christ, and he'd throw a verse over his shoulder and the paper behind was building up. He said, there are only two verses, maybe three, that we can use. He said, it's so old-worldy, so old-fashioned. And he said, the only thing that'll save it is key changes. So we, we started... And Tommy said, OK, we have to start here, and that I'll make that a cappella, and you will be... And then I'll sneak in here, and then we'll do a key change here. That's how it worked. He thought it was the worst song on the planet. And quite frankly, before he whipped it into shape it was it wasn't good right so everyone wanted waltzing matilda oh I think, well yes but you see i love waltzing Matilda. it's not an anthem no 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 not at all it's a great no, no. it's a great national song song yeah but, but not an anthem no mm. so tommy did this with a ripping score and uh people just looked at him and oh they said tico's done it again you know made a silk purse out of a sow's ear you recorded it, didn't you? Mm, we did. It was only to go for um, schools, to go out into schools, uh, and maybe some government uh, occasions, and that was it. You know, I was never going to be bobbing up like a yo-yo singing the anthem everywhere. It just happened. And any of the big, big occasions, Tommy would ring me up and say, sweetheart, we are doing this, and I need you to come and do the anthem. Okay, yeah. But all the other stuff just came because, oh, she sings the anthem. Quite frankly, no one else wanted to. So off I went and did schools and all sorts of footy matches and cricket matches and all, all of that, a lot of it out on the arena stuff. Um, so it, it gave me a lot of opportunities to do that sort of thing and meet a lot of people. It was quite fun. Mm. You know, you walk out into the field with, with Warney and... And he's chatting away, and I do the anthem, and he presents something, and all the footballers get out in the end. They say, "Get out, Jill!" <laughs> Back again. Alfie Langer. Alfie Langer said, "Oh, get out, Jill! How you going?" And that's how it got to be, you know, me, me again with yet another um, uh, cricket team for the Australian cricket team or the footy. It was great. It was you know that side of it I really loved. Mm. Mm. Back to Simon. You you did the Mikado with him playing Katusha. I did. Yes, I loved Katusha. She was a, quite a woman, that one. Um, back to your GNS roots, was it? Because no. uh, did you sing GNS as a kid? No. Oh, my uncle did. Uncle my George. Un uncle Jim. Jim. Uncle George in the show. Peter Carroll made him Uncle George. Oh right. I don't know why. <laughs> Peter, Peter was, you know, treading a delicate line in case he got an irate relative <laughs> to oh, see right. the show. Okay. He said, "I better not call him Uncle Jim because you, some of your rallies might come in." Right. No, um, Uncle... Talking about the show Lush, of course, which yes, yes Lush, I've been, I've been yes. listening to recently and I saw years yeah. ago. Yeah. No, Uncle Jim was the, my first introduction to anything theatrical in Bury in South Australia. He was in the Bury Musical Theatrical Society. He was a fruit grower. And I went with him one day to a rehearsal. He said, hey, you want to come and you can sit up in the gods and, and just watch if you like? And it doesn't matter if you... I won't forget you there. I'll bring you home. I went up there and I watched this and I don't remember watching it. I went off right with the pixies. I hung over the edge of the balcony in the Berry Theatre and in the end there's a tap on the shoulder saying, um, 
uncle with me, Jim's down there waiting for you. And I sort of snapped out of this world. And that was uh, GNS that they were doing. And fast forward about 40 years, I never went near it again. Right. I loved it. That introduced me to uh, anybody performing. I'd never seen Uncle Jim do anything like that before, or anybody. And sort of stored that as a memory for a long time until I was, I was only about six then and didn't even go near music again until I was 19. Because growing up in the Mallee, I, I guess there wasn't any opportunity for, for live music, live performance. Nothing. Even television, perhaps. Nothing. Well, <laughs> television didn't come until very late. In the 60s, I think, we got yeah. television. Yeah. But um, no, it was, uh, it was, we were a very musical family. My dad's family all were musical. My mum's family could pick up an instrument and play it. And they had a band and they all sang. But in the middle of it, it was never taken seriously. It's just something they did for a bit of fun. So where I, I mean, they were even shocked that I turned out to do what I did. And Uncle Jim came and saw me on a talent, my first talent quest in Adelaide. And he was so stunned. And he said, don't ever give this up. And I thought, why, why, why is he saying that? Because no, I was only just a side thing for me. And I said, oh, no, I like to do it. I, I'll, I'll do it here and there. No, no, no. He said, don't ever give it up. And I thought, what an interesting thing to say. What does he mean by that, really? Because I'm not giving it up. I do a show, a little show here, and still a couple of songs there, not knowing what he saw. Or heard. Or heard, mm-hmm. I guess, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, we're a funny bunch. We, can all, we all probably have the ability to do it, and I was the only one that, that by happenstance, did do it. When did you start doing it on a, on a regular basis? Was that breaking into band work and, mm. and singing around the uh, traps? Band work. Um, the, river, the Riverland area in South Australia at that time, Renmark had a dinner dance. <laughs> Berry had a dinner dance. Right. Wakery had a dinner dance. Every weekend. Every weekend. Yeah, yeah. Saturday night or, or Friday night. Maybe both. And um, So you might have a couple of gigs in one night. Perhaps. No, 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 you no, stay with weekend, the, the one day. Maybe. All oh, right, okay. Maybe. But I, I was, a band rang me up. How they found out where I lived and did that, I don't know. Dad went to the barber shop in Wakery and they, they'd lost their band, the singer. And they were all bemoaning the fact that, oh, she just took off and she's gone to Adelaide. We've got the high school ball tonight. And Dad said, oh, I've got a daughter who sings all the time. Maybe she can help you out. This is a good old dad. That's what farmers do. They help anybody out doing yep. anything. And he came home and said, look, there's a band up there. And uh, I said, I'd run you up tonight. you just got to sing a couple of songs. I said, pardon? And he said, oh, you know, you're singing all the time. You just sing a couple of songs, helps them out. Otherwise, they won't get the job anymore. And all this sort of stuff they told Dad. I was horrified. I didn't do school concerts. And there was, well, I was in a very school, small school. But I managed to avoid them. And I, because Dad had said, I had to do it. So I was very silent all the way to Wakery, which was 70 miles. He went back again with me that night to help them out. And I rustled up three songs and we stumbled through those. Well, I thought we were. I, I looked up and there was people dancing, looking at me. I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear, this is horrendous. Finished that and I said, can we go home now to Dad? And he said, oh, I guess so. And yeah, the band said, I'll ring you, said the, the fellow, the drummer who was leading the band. 
And I thought, oh, well, you won't know where I live, so I'm safe there. And then, of course, next week the phone rings. Can you work with us? And I said, how do you mean work with you? I'll come up and do a few songs and when we work in the, in the Berry pub. I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. And Dad said, oh, well, I wouldn't do it until they sort it out. And that's how it started. They never found another singer and I just kept on singing around the Riverland doing 30 songs a night with a band. Another band rang me and I was poached from that band by another band <laughs> uh, who said, you need to come sing with us. And so I went and sang with them. Lipstick on your colour Told a tale on you, yeah Lipstick on your colour Said you were untrue, yeah That's your said you have to enter this talent quest on Channel 7 it's, uh, and I said I'm not going on television forget that one so they did Julie Lush and sent it down and I got a letter in the mail saying you're, you are to appear at uh, Channel 7 in Adelaide for the auditions for the Here's Parry talent quest I had no idea what I thought they got this all wrong yeah. and uh, <clears throat> went to work with the band next week and they said did you ever hear from uh, you didn't hear from Channel 7 did you I said, as a matter of fact, I did. And they said, well, you've got to go. I said, did you do this? And he said, yeah. He said, you're not going to do it, are you? I said, no. He said, but we have to go. We need you to go and do this thing. He said, you mightn't get through, but go and do it. So I did. And I got through. So I got a heat. I was in heat two. My brother was in heat one. <laughs> <laughs> so this was getting a bit scary. I had, I had never been on television. I didn't understand cameras what to do so I won heat one by some miracle everyone else must have been not particularly good I think and then I had to go to heat two I didn't realize that this was going to happen so I went to heat two picked a song with the musical director he said that'll be good that'll be fine you sing that one so I won heat two and heat three was it you know the final was heat three and, of course, it's in the paper in Adelaide, you know, farm girl, Julia, on the show. And I thought, oh, the pressure, <laughs> the pressure was enormous because I was pretty shy. And so apparently the director had said, well, we need to put her to the test a bit to see if, she, if she's a, you know, a bit of a fluke or whether she actually can sing. So they put in a, I sang more, but they put in a really difficult key change, Alan Slater. I think he felt really sorry that he had to do it to poor Alan. And at the rehearsal, I thought, where are they going? And I followed it, you know, what, half a beat behind. Yeah. And he looked at me, and, and I knew he was going to say, I can help you with this, but he couldn't. Because that was my big test, whether I was going to be as, as good as they thought I was. So I'm on my little spot, and ladies and gentlemen, tonight's and then Julie Lush. And I thought about it long enough to work out that if I just sneak in quickly after I hear that, it'll look like I know it. Mm. So I did, and it was a... And I remembered the progression, and I just about did it with them, and that got me over the line. Wow. And they told me afterwards. 
they said, you know, we put that key change in to see if we could uh, find out how, how musical you were. Why they needed to know that and put me in that position, but they did, and so I snuck it in and won six hundred dollars. Fantastic! And a trip to the do the show at Rest Point. That's a great sequence for the film. <laughs> for the film, <laughs> there's going to be a film. No, oh no 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 no. So you obviously beat your brother, Steve. Uh, I wasn't in the same heat. Right. No. But so he, did he go through to the final? No. No, no he didn't. Um, but only because he sang very much like Tom Jones. He's got a great voice, really strong voice. And he sang a Tom Jones song, and that was apparently the reason why he didn't get into Heat 2. They thought he was a bit of a clone, which he wasn't. He just sang it because he was like that, and he had that kind of voice, and he thought that would be a good song to sing. These spice cookies are good. You like my spice cookies? Yeah, 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 oh, all right. I'll give, you some, right. I'll give you some takeaways. It's, um, it's a, a two-second dunk, I think, mm. just to mm. supplement them to the right I haven't worked that one out yet. Right thing, just so. Because I'm conscious every time. <laughs> I'm enjoying one. I'm conscious of crunching for the microphone. Oh, don't worry about that. People understand that we're having biscuits. Oh, your middle name is Moncrief. It is. Is that a fluke? It was that, that anything a, to do with our glad? Not our glad, no. But my my mother's, uh, my grandma's auntie was a Moncrief as a surname. Oh. Like, yeah, she was yep. a Moncrief. And... So my mother is Betty Moncrief, and Mum passed that on to me, Julie Moncrief. But I did get to meet our dad uh, some year, many years later when she was quite elderly and living in the Gold Coast, and I'd done Irene in Brisbane, and they did it as a photo op thing, and yeah. I came down and met Gladys Moncrief. It was wonderful. She was so lovely, and she said, I... I believe you have my name in there somewhere. And I said, I told her the story. She said, oh, yes, yes, there are. I've, I've tracked down where the Moncriefs are in Australia and I know there is some in South Australia. And she, she was kind of aware of the lineage. Mm, but it was, isn't it a funny... It was a perfect thing for Williamson's. They loved that. They love that, yeah. Oh, they, they love that they one. Yeah. Here's a hook. <laughs> mm, kind of was. How'd you go at rest point? Oh. Because you'd, you'd have to uh, devise to an act then, Yes, you? well, yeah. Alan Slater felt terribly sorry for me. He said, look, come and, and I'll go through the library and see what we've got. I didn't have any musical charts. So we did, and he, he picked out songs for me. He said, look, put this one, one, sing this one first. That'll be your opener singer. So he had to be a 20-minute spot, not terribly long. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I thought, I just have to do this because I have to do this. And I went in, and the, and the MC said, ladies and gentlemen, Julie Lush, well, the, the laughter, you couldn't hear anybody speak. They were screeching with laughter. It was full of American tourists. Oh. And I was a Lush, which means that, you know, you drink yes, a bit. Uh, yes, like, like She a, drinks a bit. Like a, a tipple. Yeah. yeah. So I struggled through these songs thinking, oh, for goodness sake. And I went out and the Americans followed me. Young lady, your name can't be Lush. And I said, it is. And they said, oh, wow, we... You know, you know what that means in our country? I said, no. <laughs> they told me. Well, and I thought, you, yeah. well, this is getting worse. So I had to do the next night as well. And that really told me that I was not cut out to be a cabaret performer. I didn't enjoy it at all. And I thought, no, I like to sing, but not like this. I don't want to do this. And the band were great. And they said, look, you, you, all you need to do is just... In the compare, you just need to get someone to throw a show together for you because you can certainly handle the songs. And I said, you know, thank you, and toddled off home thinking, oh, never again. 
And of course, Wally Lund, who was teaching me piano, was ex-musical director of Channel 9, and he said, you can't look at it that way. That's, everyone feels like that when they start. Nobody knows how it works. I didn't know how, how it was going to work for me to conduct the orchestra on Channel 9, but mm. you, were, you learn on your feet. Yep. He said, I can help you out by sticking a show together for you. I can write some special songs that you like to sing rather than stuff that you had to sing. He said, that'll make a difference. And uh, I'll put you in touch with the agents and, and we'll just get you going. Mm. And so I did. I walked, worked around Adelaide and that made sense. The show made sense and the songs. And I, I learned, I watched people when I learned how to, to do what they were doing to the best of my ability, you know, doing a show, doing a bit of chat. That was my hard, the hard thing for me was to talk to an audience, mm. being a shy little country girl. Yeah. But you learn, and I had the best teachers. Um, Wally put me in touch with Tony Brady in Sydney. He said, there's only one agent I know who won't rip you off. His name's Tony Brady. And Tony, of course, then was my agent for 35 years. Um, And Tony put me in touch with Tommy Tigo. And so I bunny hopped with, through the industry, working with the Crocker segments. And, and, uh, you know, you learn really fast if you've got the right people to teach you. Um, I've not met a lush, um, but... There's a few of us around. Yeah. Mm. I've met a few lushes, <laughs> but not a lush. <laughs> um, when did the stage name come about? When I went to Sydney. Right. I went to Sydney and Tony said, oh, love, he said, I don't think we can use lush. He said, you know, how did it go in, in rest point? I was telling him, I said, oh, they cracked up. He said, yeah, they might do that. It's a bit of a distraction. He said, listen, go home and think, think of a name. And, and when we get your, your shots done, I can't wait too long. I've got to get the photos. Go and see a photographer. Send me the, the, oh, ne- the negatives. Oh, your name would be printed on the photo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So send me the negatives and the name. Who you want to be. Oh, that stopped me in my tracks. I thought, well, I'm going through names. I thought none of them sounded right. And... I was looking at his letterhead, Anthony J. Brady. I thought, Anthony, what about that? I thought, that might do. I said, okay. Um, I sent him a letter saying, I'm Julie Anthony. Oh, all right, he never twigged. Okay, love, that'd be good. That's an A. He said, you'd be on top of the bill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's how it came about. Even if your name is Lush, you can't think of another one that works. Mm. Because um, you've been Julie Lush, Julie Moncrief Lush, for years, mm. perfectly happily. Mm. Mm. Um, you tell people that you're going to talk to Julie Anthony, and and their brain all uh, already is one step ahead of you, and thinking you're about to say Julie Andrews. Mm. Does that come up a lot that people oh, sort of say great confusion. Julie Andrews, Julie Incredible Anthony, confusion. Julie and, yeah. Way into my career, no, well, into my career, where I would have thought people would have known the difference, but my band would go out after shows into the room and they'd say, well, she looks different, you know, in, in, in real life. Uh, and her hair, she's, she changed her hair, hasn't she? And the band just, just didn't tweak for a while and they used to think, oh, she's, she's the same. Oh, I loved her in, in, in Mary Poppins. I thought she was so good. I never thought she'd be doing this sort of a show. <laughs> no. Yes. Yes, Bizarre, and they'd it? come back and say, you're never going to believe this. Mike Harvey was my MD. He said, but people ask us, you know, what you're doing, doing shows and not, and, and how lovely you were in, in Sound of Music. I said, good God, are they? And he said, they are. 
I said, what do you say? And he said, oh, I mutter and splutter. <laughs> and say, oh, that's lovely, I'll tell her, you know, that you liked her. I said, oh. He said, you can't uh, tell them. And, you, and there was a certain faction. And I'd say, oh, I'm actually Anthony, uh, not Andrews. And they'd go, oh, yes. Now, did you, which, what was your favourite movie? They didn't want to listen. No, no. they'd override that one completely. No. And, and so in the end, I just used to say, oh, they were all, all great fun. And, and toddle off thinking, oh, gosh, this is really embedded, mm. you know, in people's minds. So, well, with terrific serendipity. You actually got to play one of Andrew's roles mm. in The Sound of Music. I did. I stage. did. Oh, absolute chaos. <laughs> they, half the theatre thought they were there to see her. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. But um, Peter Carroll used to say to me, must have been a bit of confusion there. And I said, I think there was. Went to London and Harold Fielding was the entrepreneur and his wife Maisie said, we've got to go and get you your shoes now. We'll go into the shoemaker and get your shoes all made. So I toddled off with Maisie to get my shoes made. And they turned up and she said, all your shoes are there. And there was about eight pairs. Um, Check them all out before, so we don't want you with sore feet, do we? And I said, no, of course not. Thinking, right. And they're all too big. And I said to Mrs Fielding, I said, look, I'm sorry, but something's amiss here. They're too big. She said, what do you mean they're too big? Uh, we had your shoes measured. They can't be too big. I said, well, I, hang on a minute. And I took, and I'm sloshing around in the shoe. Oh, she said, well, look, we'll, I'll ring him up. We'll go straight up there and talk to him. That's just, this isn't right. These shoes are very expensive. So we go up to the shoemaker and he said, no, they're her shoes. And he went out and got the last and held up the last. Guess whose name is on the last? Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. So her feet are bigger than mine, just for a little stat for you, Peter. That's, I love that yes. statistic. Mm. <laughs> so her feet are bigger than mine, and she said, it's not Andrews, it's Anthony. And I thought, well, it's Anthony, but never mind. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it was one of those classic moments. Just kept mm. bumping into her. Kept bumping into her, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you just... <sighs> Have you ever met her? No. No, no, paths no. never crossed. No. no, you just plough on and, you know, doing something like this. Ferrier used to say, look, you're perfect for the role. I know it's going to be a nightmare for you with all that comparison thing. He said, but just plough on. And they had an American director, uh, Gerald Friedman, and he said, what an extraordinary coincidence. You even look a bit like her. And I said, well, yes, I do. He said, just plough on. <laughs> so you've got to forget... Uh, comparisons or comparisons. expectations, but, yeah. It ends up being quite similar because of what the role is. You know, you're, you're playing this little naive uh, postulate and he goes and meets. It's not much you can do to not be a bit the same because we actually probably are. Mm. So, plow on. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something something good my heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake to the trees to sing through the night like a lark who is I go to the hills 
83. It was some time mm-hmm. after your stage debut with Irene, which mm-hmm. we will talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, why was there such a, a long time between uh, musical theatre productions for you before Sound oh, of Music look, came along? I think there was one that came up, um, that uh, which I won't mention because somebody else did a brilliant job. I never saw myself as a theatrical, and by this time I'm doing what I want and in structuring a show with impersonations and dance routines. David Atkins did my choreography and we had a a good thing going. I had my own band. We toured and we worked every night of the week somewhere and we had the tour bus and it was like this raging family that went around and they were all my my brothers and they were top musos. Doug Gallagher, Tom Ferris, you know, everybody that was session musos. They were on this bus with because we had such a good thing going and it was a really good show we had a couple of dancers and all that and we just enjoyed it together I couldn't see the merit in eight shows a week of the same thing eight shows a week for somebody else doing the same thing rigidly whereas I'm doing eight shows a week yes but I'm on a bus with my, my brothers they're all my brothers and I'm doing what I want and often would go off on a tangent in the middle of the show and the guys would look at me and go, right, she's off. And I can do what I want in any given moment on stage and it was great fun. I just didn't avoid theatre, I just didn't say yes. Because mm-hmm. um, it requires a, a specific discipline, doesn't it? To... It does. And so does being on tour, probably more so, because mm. you've got to travel... Uh, all day in a bus and do the show that night and do it as good as, and get on that bus early in the morning and do that again every night. But it's still the freedom of it. Um, theatre shows have to be to the letter. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, experience. Mm. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, you know, what I did I, I, I did, I do, I do as well in the middle there. Um, but it's that gypsy thing, I think, and, and being on the road and travelling through the bush, the audience are a lot of country people that I really related to, and they me, uh, and we had a it was it was good times because you'd be filling these theatres, you know, if there were three seats, three seats, three empty seats tonight in an eight hundred <laughs> seater, you know, you go, Whoa, what happened there? So it was it was good times, and we uh, did that for years. I had the privilege of working with the top musicians on a bus tour for years and I'm so glad that I took that path because um, it was me I was being me I wasn't having to be somebody else and that meant that I was still honing my craft in a sense finding out how far I could take it on stage and and what was working and what I might try over there and bringing humour into the into the show, you know, bringing the comedy and letting that come out. Yeah, 
So, well, I, part of that comedy were impersonations. You yes, know, you, you did yes. a lot of impersonations, yes, and I I've did. heard you do accents also. You do great accents. Oh. Now, I, I assume that's all to do with the ear. You've got a yes. great ear, which allows you to harmonise. And I have an ear. That's my blessing and my curse. Mm. You know, I have an ear that, uh, like Tommy used to say, Svetha, don't listen, just listen to me and I tell you what to sing there because it's important for the rest of the orchestra that you go there. And I say, oh, okay, all right. But I did, I, I, could, I could weave around and do whatever I liked every night within the same structure of the shows. And I think it's just that being on a farm, you do what you like any day of the week. You're free, and I needed to be free on stage, not bound up by uh, structure, and that's the key. Yeah. Mm. Uh, another of your great teachers was Betty Pounder. Oh. Yeah. Yes, I never would have done Irene. I never would have got to the second day without Pounder, because Freddie Carpenter was a kind of very volatile character. He used to yell at people a lot, and um, Pounder talked to me before we even started and said, look, don't take him to heart. He's, that's his way of getting his work across, is he raises his voice and he jumps up and down and he'll yell. Not just at you, he'll yell at everybody. Ignore that. The bark's worse than the bite. Yes. Yeah. Listen to what he went, wants you to, the gist of it, where he wants you to be on stage come to me at the end of the day or whenever you like. If it's lunchtime, come to me and I'll walk you through it. That's what I did. He would yell at me, and I, but I had a great cast. Pamela Gibbons was wonderful. Yeah. Brockenshire, Joan would they say, Brockenshire would say, oh God, don't listen to him. And Gibbo would say, you know that, that that's prompt over here and that's OP. So when you, and, and, and she used to say, and that's downstage and that's upstage. Because I'm walking, working with tape on a floor in the upper circle I couldn't get a, a get, you know a bead on where the stage was and so she did that for me Farrah used to say oh Christ that yelling git he called him <laughs> Farrah used to say I don't know how you're doing this and of course the first day of rehearsals was the first day of AA for Noel so there was a tremendous Barney with he and Freddie, they were the, and we, we were told to go away, come back when Pounder said, we'll come and get you, won't be long. So we all went and had coffee somewhere and I think Ferrier basically had to say to him, look, yelling isn't good. And Ferrier was the only one in the cast who had the whole thing down, he had no book in his hand the first day. Freddie, probably that bothered Freddie, I think, the fact that somebody knew what they were doing that early on. And anyway, he sort of zoned in on me a bit and did a lot of yelling and saying, you will never be able to do this, you know, you'll never be able to do this, he said to me. And I thought, well, I kind of agreed with him, which didn't help either. I said, well, I'm trying, but no, you're probably right. Oh, and he said to Pounder, I can't get through to her. And Pounder said to me, don't take all that with a grain of salt. That's just how he works. When he gets insecure, he yells at you. So that's how it was, and it was pretty, you know, Doreen Warburton was great. She'd say, look, I'll, I'll work with you with our scenes. And she'd come around after the show to where I was staying, and we'd do our scenes. And Doreen was a director too, so she'd say, look, let's sneak that bit in, he won't know. 
It would be lovely, wouldn't it? Would it be lovely if we do that there? And I'd say, yeah, that'd be great. So these people saved me. Because you'd never acted before, had you? Never acted in my life. Not even in the school plays. So it was a heck of a jump. At the end of a rainbow, there's happiness. And to find it how often I try. But my life is a race, just a wild goose chase. And my dreams have all been denied. I'm always chasing rainbows, watching clouds drifting by. My dreams are just like all. make a winning sometimes but I never even make a gain believe me I'm always chasing rainbows waiting to find a little bluebird waiting to find that little bluebird waiting to find a little bluebird How did the role come about? Because I, I believe that you auditioned for A Little Night Music I originally. I did. And that's when you met Pounder. It was. I said to Tony Brady one day, back in the club days, when I was doing three shows a day on a Sunday, and I thought, I wonder what else there is you can do. And I said to Tony, what else is there you can do? And he said, oh, theatre. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, funnily enough, they're having a cattle call for Williamson's next week. So all you've got to do is grab a sheet of music and go down and line up. So I did. But in this lineup, there's people who I watched on The Sound of Music, and I'm looking around and thinking, what are they doing here? I didn't understand that they were going for senior roles and all of that. Yeah. And so I did the audition, and Pound took me through the steps, and uh, Noel Smith was playing piano and down there, Greg Kreese, Noel conducting. And I think I was pretty average. Really? I sang the songs all right, but after that I had no idea doing lines. Somebody came out and we had to do lines. I thought, oh. <laughs> Bounty <laughs> came up afterwards. He said, that was lovely. Um, listen, um, we'll be in touch. I think we'll be in touch somewhere along the line. She said so. But thank you for coming in. It was just lovely to see you. And in the interim, I did a one of those gala shows on television from Melbourne with Graham Kennedy comparing and all of that, and Pounder was watching. And I came out and roared my way through some blockbuster song. And she, they were talking about doing Irene Williamson's and who they would have. And Pounder's little ears went ding. And she contacted Tony and said, look, I just saw Julie on it on the, the show that was on last night. Could you think you could get her into the uh, auditions at Williamson's in Melbourne? I'm in Sydney. 
Tony saw the merit in that and said, listen, um, you need to get down to Melbourne and do these auditions for a show called Irene that Betty Pounders kind of said, she, you think you should go and audition. And I did. Uh, got down there and, and did the usual few songs and a bit of a... But Irene suited me. She was kind of me, in a way. And I could do the lines and be sort of reasonable. Not really, but better than when I was doing the other one. Well, it required an accent as well, didn't That's it? That's right, Irish. Mm. I could do that. And so Pounder then called me back a second time and it was just me. And out in the darkness were these half a dozen men in suits, which was Williamson's in the back sort of halfway up the road and she didn't tell me why she just said I just wanted to check a few things I didn't see them until after because all in the darkness so we ran a few things and, and sang and she said hey just try this bit of an Irish jig I can do that and you know it's pretty I could manage that and a few lines with somebody and and, and Pounder was and then I, she said I'll be back in a minute just just wait here and I saw her go down into the auditorium and to these men so that was her going to bat for explaining to them what this role was about and why this person was good because she was as, as naive as Irene might have been herself you know she just bullied them in the nicest way to say this is the girl that needs to play this role and what a great um, opportunity for you to introduce a new young performer, a new possible star. Yeah. So she went out them hammer and tongs. They finally saw that there could be some merit in it and they said to her, well, it's on you. If you can't whip her into shape, we won't be putting the show on. But in the meantime, we've got f fully cast, turn up for rehearsals, get the director and do all that. He said, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, you better have somebody else waiting in the wings who can do it. So the pressure on her was, I would say, enormous. Um, so that was first day of rehearsal, off we went, and Freddie muttering to me, you'll never be able to do this, you know, you'll never be able to do this. Thanks very much. And that's, then the grit came in, then the old country grit, I thought, yes, I will. So I said to Pounder, this is what he says. She said, oh, ignore him, he hasn't got a clue. And off we went. So I thrashed my way through with these wonderful people who were all so supportive, which, um, God, I was grateful for them, for the Ferriers and the Warburtons and the Pamela and Joan and Robert Coleman. They all were there. They swooped in and, and just every scene I had with all those different people, they just made it work because they knew what was at stake. Yeah. Mm. They're generous co-stars extremely generous yeah. I've never forgotten them, any of them because and even the kids in the dance crew and uh, were all oh it made it funny come on you, you must have Irish feet you seem to be able to do it this oh look at that she can do Irish <laughs> you know all that sort of stuff you go girl and so they gave me the confidence to be in the middle of them with all these fabulous dancers and trying to be halfway keeping up you made me love you I didn't want to do it I didn't want to do it You made me want you 
the time you knew it I guess you always knew it You made me happy sometimes You made me glad But there were times, dear Do you remember opening night? I do, I do, very much so. Um, standing in the wings and the orchestra had started. Joan Brockenshire is about to go on, still putting on the left eyelash, gluing it on, and I thought, wow, these people are so calm. Yes, they've done it before. They've done it before. And then, of course, I have to go upstage and walk in and fall over and drop all my books. That bit I don't remember. So I made the entrance... Here she comes, I really know, there, and I walk in, I trip and sit down and fall down and all the books are here. And I realised I was still sitting there and I looked up and there's people in the audience. And for a minute, I thought, oh, just that little moment of, oh. And I thought, get up, said the voice in my head, get up. So I got up and picked up the books and said, oh, dear, you know, I was back again and on we went. But for a minute there, it was just that... Somebody opened the door yeah. and there was an audience and yeah. I shut the door again and thought, keep going. Yeah. Mm. So that was when I realised, put your head down, just do what you've been told to do. It only played Broadway with Debbie Reynolds. Mm. Hadn't yet played London. No. But you took it to London. Oh, yes, they took me to London. Yes, they did. How did that come about? Uh, I don't know, really. I think, I think it was... Um, it was going to be Williamson's Take It to London in the first instance. That was the idea. The actors' equity, the equity wouldn't let them in as an entirety. They oh, did they want to take the company? All, everything. Right. Boom. You know, makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Surely there'd be an easy way. And was, way. was Harold Fielding the, Harold, the UK producer? Harold right. Fielding was the UK producer. And that's why they uh, didn't get it by, because Harold was very much the union man. And, of course, the union said, no, 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 not even me. They said, no, 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 not on. So uh, that was part of Pounder's dream to do the West End. And at one point she almost did, and then they pulled it out from under her. And I got through the web. Um, I'm not sure how that worked. Uh, Maybe Freddie Carpenter, who directed again, I think maybe he pushed for it too. Yeah. Did he think he could do it in the All end? All of a sudden, I was marvellous. <laughs> somebody told me that he said to them, oh, she's absolutely marvellous. She's, she's marvellous, made for the role. Of course, I taught her everything, I, you know, <laughs> which was the next line, I think. But, yeah, however, uh, I, I went um, to, do, to do it in, on the West End, uh, which was a pretty big step um, because I, I was going to get back in my tour, my favourite tour bus and go off again. Uh, and I didn't really know whether this was the right decision, but of course everybody's saying, what, you're not going to do the West End? So I did, and first day of rehearsal in walked half the Australian cast, you know, the uh, Bruce and Leslie Scott and Valerie Bader, Peter Pantelic, all my cornerstones of it here yeah. went over and did it there. So it was just 
wonderful to walk in and, and I saw these guys coming through the door. I thought, where am I? I'm in London and, and there, yes. there, there's Pete and there's, there's Belle. And, and I thought, well, yes. Uh, oh, yes, that must have been great to have some it mates. Wonderful. They, they yeah. don't know how wonderful it was, probably. And tradition followed. Of course, the first day of rehearsal, we had to break because John Pertwee and Freddie Carpenter were screeching at one another. <laughs> that would, that, yelling. That was a repeat of Noel. A repeat. And, uh, yes. A repeat. Madame Lucy and the director. Yes, yeah. A repeat because it was a completely different take that John Pertwee ma- made in French. And he was a French couturier. And Freddie said, What are you doing? What's that? Noel Ferrier was wonderful. Oh, dear. In the role in Australia. That's what an actor wants to hear. <laughs> Not John Pertwee. John Pertwee just stopped dead and said, Well, if you want Noel Ferrier, go and find Noel Ferrier because I'm leaving. And he walked out. So it was one of those other coffee break, everyone, and we all trotted up to the coffee shop. Came back, and John Pertwee was still there. And we had a, they rehearsed other things, and we got onto the other side of it, and not Madame Lucy so much, but then there's a tap on my dressing room door. And Pertwee came in, and he was in a right old flurry. He said, Just tell me. What did this Noel Ferrier do? And I said, but I can't tell you that because you're never going to... Your poles apart. Yeah. You wouldn't Well, do, physically, they were yes, so different as well. Everything. Yeah. Personality-wise, I said, you would never play the role like Noel did, who was this wonderful, big, blustery, charming, uh, complete, total fraud sweetheart, you know, and as a role, but pulled it off and was hilarious. I, I said, you will do it, but... You can't do it right now. And he, oh, he said, oh, Christ. And he was so upset. And he said, well, I don't think I can do it. I said, well, of course you can do it. And he said, well, he's going to get, if he brings up Noel Ferrier again, I said, well, you know, tell him to leave Noel Ferrier out of it. And, of course, they had another Barney. And he did say something to that effect, to which Freddie said grudgingly, all right, show me what you've got. Show me what you're going to do as, as Madame Lucy. So it was totally different, totally different. And I think Freddie struggled with it. And, of course, as cast members too, we Aussies were going, mm, wow, this is different. But they were all different. Yeah. Um, my mother, Jessie, was different to Doreen Warburton poles apart. Very hard to go in and do a repeat of a show yeah. that has been so perfectly cast by Pounder and go over there and I, you got the sense that it was pulled together because people were, had done something in their theatrical careers and they just pulled them in and do this. I guess subsequently also you had to adapt to the different performances oh, yes. that were, were thrown to yeah, you. Yeah, very much so. The only one that was straight ahead was... Eric Flynn, who played Donald S. Marshall, very very similar to my Donald's here. But Mum was totally different. She played a little fleshy Irish, you know, swigging the beer down and weaving around the cast, which actually she was probably doing in real life too. <laughs> a couple of times there, we didn't know where we were going. And John uh, devised the French couturier, and uh, he, he wore... 
little velvet slippers that you couldn't tell where he was on stage. He crept around the stage like a silent partner, you know. Where'd he go? Couldn't hear him. And uh, he did struggle with the role. He really did. And I felt for him in that way because he sort of realised that that's not the sort of role he probably should be doing. Had he done Doctor Who at that stage? Yes. He was well into Doctor Who and he was doing a thing called Wurzel Gummidge, which was a kind of a cartoony thing for the kids. Um, But he had created his own thing with those roles and and he was kind of locked into Madame Lucy and had to find a way and he found it really hard. He really did. It was interesting to watch and, and hard to watch. Was it received by the critics well in, in London? It was, yeah. it was. Um, but they, of course, <sighs> I think we Aussies in the cast, so I wish that if they'd seen the Aussie cast, they would yeah. Have, yeah. we would have gone through the roof. Yeah. Uh, with all due respect, it, but it's, it's a different... We're two different sorts of animals, the way the Aussies approach it and the way the English went straight to the text. God, there's no text in Irene. It's just, it's very froth and bubble. And I think um, we have that ability here to just twist things around and make them work. And I think particularly John found that hard. And um, I don't know, I think he just lived under a bit of a cloud. I think they all did. I think everyone had told them how good the Australian company were and they're all a bit jumpy about it. Well, at the height of that success, you started to have vocal problems. Oh, I did. Yeah. I certainly did. And um, is, that, is that what finished Irene for you? Mm, yeah. yeah, I couldn't go on. Right. Uh, nobody knew. Nobody could find out what it was. It was um, it turned out to be a thing called a spider nevi on the back of the cords, like a web of veins. Right. And when the cords vibrated, the veins would hemorrhage. But nobody could work that one out because it was right on the back of the cords. So you had no control over your voice? or no, it, it, it was just, just shut no down. Strength, right? Just shut down. Harold, dear Mr Fielding, thought that I just decided I'd had enough and wanted to go home and was not in much trouble at all. Right. The cast members from Australia said, this is not right, she wouldn't do that. Yeah. And, but he, he was a stone, thorn in my side. He did not believe me. And uh, I think he spread the seed through perhaps Pertwee didn't really either. And, and so I was in a bit of a pickle there for a while because it was only the Aussies that really got the fact that I was in trouble. So he kept, I kept having to go back and do this show and that happened understudy, but I couldn't barely get through one show. Right. And so it was, it was a... It was one of the, uh, probably the nastiest moment I've ever had really because I wasn't on familiar ground and Fielding was a tough man and he simply never believed me. Never believed me. So it caused a lot of friction within the company uh, really uh, that the Aussies, bless them, they they were there stoically saying, well, uh, it's not something that she's going to do unless she's in trouble. So I came home and they uh, replaced me with uh, another English girl. And I took a break and then I started going back into uh, cabaret and my own thing, but the problem came back. So I was breaking down uh, again. Went to my specialist here and he said, I can see what what it is. He said, behind your cords, you've got a thing called a spider nevi. My professor, 
who taught me, he's the best man in the world, he's in Germany, I'm going to give him a ring. That's where you need to go. So the next day I was on a plane to Germany to see Mr. Klein Sasser, and he uh, examined me and said, ah, no, no, no problem, I will fix you. And he opened up a backlit cupboard of very famous people's vocal cords, <laughs> shredded to bits. <clears throat> he said, don't pass on any names, but there you go. These people are all fine. They're all working again. And I looked at the names, I thought they certainly are. And so he operated on me and we did the uh, after therapy, which was herbal actually, chamomile tea inhalations in a big, of a huge vat in the cellar with all we people uh, inhaling chamomile. And uh, he was a really good bloke, lovely man and fix the problem. He said, uh, maybe you'll give it five weeks when you get home, you'll be fine. So I gave it longer than that, I wasn't in no rush, so I gave it a good chance. And he'd ring up and said, I'm doing a lecture in Sydney, can I come to your house? And I said, yes. So his wife and his son and he came around and we had lunch. He said, can I have a little nap? <laughs> I'm very tired, I have a lecture tonight. So I said, there you go, there's the bed. <laughs> so he parked himself on the bed and had a little nap. And we had a lovely chat, me, his wife and his son, and his son came out and visited us and stayed with us. He was a really nice, lovely man, yeah. but a, a great uh, surgeon. I wonder how lucky that uh, John Tonkin said, look, I can do this, but this man is God. I want you to go to him. Yeah. So, Did he suggest as to, to why it occurred? Was it? No, it's simply um, uh, hereditary. Right. I had it there all the time. Right. So and, until I went into the eight shows a week, uh, no that, rest that, that's routine. That's when it said, "Excuse me, I don't do H a week." So yeah, it was always there. What was it like? Because uh, you'd sung all your life, using that that form of expression. Mm. I mean, that, that's part of you, isn't it? Mm. Singing. Yeah. Mm. It is, but I'm also a farmer's daughter. Right. Saved me. Yeah. I just thought, well, you know, what what I've done already, um, far more than I ever thought I would. So if this doesn't work, uh, off I go back to the bush. And it didn't really bother me all that much. Um, I thought, well, uh, I've already done this, this, and this, this. It's pretty good, a bit more than I thought I was going to do, isn't it? Yeah. Like, duh. And so I thought, well, if that's the, if that's the path, that's okay. Um, I'll just go back and, uh, or I could just sing around the clubs um, and do just a little bit. So it didn't, it didn't become a, a big issue. Uh, and then when... When uh, Klein Sasser said, oh, give it five weeks, he said, um, but you don't really have to, but give it five weeks. So I gave it oh, five months. Mm. Uh, gradually worked Just my way. Just to be way. sure. Yes, found the best singing teacher in the, on the planet in, in Sydney and who taught all the opera people. And he took me back to square one. Okay, here's one. Boom, 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 boom. And, he, and he gradually we worked. And in the end, he said, do you realise what note you just sang there? And I said, no. He said, you've gone up at least, oh, you, you, you were, you, you've gone up three, four notes than you've ever sung with my, in my presence. So he said, your, way, your range is now this, which is a lot more than when I started that wow. I ever had. Oh, that's a bonus. Yeah. By, by learning how to do it properly. Had you had lessons through your career? No, no, no singing teacher. No. No. So, um, and he said, you could do opera, you know, and I said, no, no, I couldn't. 
couldn't, thanks. I'm happy where I am. Yeah. But he set me up. So after that, and he taught me how to how to sit your voice, how to breathe, how to take the heat off when you're tired, what to do, where to place it. And after that, I could sing until the cows came home um, because I was in the right place. Mm. And sometimes, literally, the cows did come home. <laughs> and if I'd given them a chance, they would have come home. So, yeah, no, I, I, it was all the right thing. If I hadn't had that strife with my voice, I never would have learned how to sing properly. It was really interesting mm. and really interesting because I knew where, what the extension of the range had gone. Mm. But I knew how to do it, mm. and I could sing notes without sort of seemingly being doing anything. Yeah. And that were to me, oh, how many tours can we do in a year? I mean, <laughs> I was um, bulletproof after that because I could sing the socks off, but I uh, never really got vocally tired after that. You and I will travel far together. We'll pursue our little star together We'll be happy as we are together We may never get to heaven But it's heaven at least you and I are going on together Till the time we have is gone together Watch the evening drawing on together Growing old Growing closer Making memories That light the sky That only time can make That only love can make That only working with the Seekers? Oh, how lucky can you be? Yeah. Um, they were asked to do the uh, closing number for Expo in Brisbane. The carnival is over. Uh, Judith wasn't on board at that time. Uh, had she left the group? Yeah. yeah. They, they had stopped performing too. They didn't have a Seekers or a, uh, the Chick Singer. <laughs> and they asked, I think, the various ones. Karen Knowles had been working with them, I think, or I'm not sure what the sequence was now, but the girls that they had used weren't available uh, and were off doing their own thing. And eventually, Athel told the producer, he said, look, we can't, not, can't get the girls, but if you can get Julie, we'll do it. Other than that, I think we're probably going to have to pass, unfortunately. 
So the producer rang me and said, listen, now I've got an interesting one for you. And he told me, and he said, and the, and the seekers have asked if, if you'd sing the carnivals over. I said, oh, love to. So up we went to Brisbane, did three runs, I think, in a room somewhere, and off we went and did the carnivals over. Couldn't get out off the stage, it was on the river stage, so we were stuck in the dressing room for the rest of the show. And, and Bruce, of course, brings out the guitar, and Keith and strum, 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 you know this one? And I said, yeah, oh, yeah, and we sing something else, and we're just singing songs. And Athol, being the great negotiator that Athol is from his parliamentary days, said, I've got a proposition for you. <laughs> and I said, and what might that be? And he said, do you want to do some shows? And Bruce and Keith are there going, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, how do you mean? Uh, oh, look, we just do, put a show together, because and, and, we've got a great blend. And we'll just do a few shows just for the heck of it. You know, we're kind of do, doing nothing and we're not used to doing nothing. Can you fit it in? And if we just plan ahead and... So we did. Um, Tony stopped the sort of normal work I was doing and, and at a certain point I was going to be free to work with the Seekers and, and so we did a... Tony put together a short tour. You know, New South Wales theatres and Queensland theatres and a few shows involved, but... We rehearsed one day out at my house in Sydney and the boys turned up, but I'd rung Janice, uh, choreographer. I said, we've put a bit of... got to be different. It can't be just the same Seekers because... Because they were an iconic foursome. Oh, yes. Was there, there any trepidation about going in and uh, assuming that, that role that you did? That Not if played? we did it this way. You, you reinvented them? Mm, not in, in, a no, sense. Well, in a sense. We sang their music, absolutely. Yep. But I figured that if we could just bring a bit of uh, theatricality into it, so to speak. Mm. So I got, um, Janice did some few little, just few little steps. She turned up and the boys just looked at me and said, what's this? We called ourselves by our second names, Monkers. <laughs> and Athel is George. I said, George, you're going to get your feet going just a bit. I said, the people know, from my standpoint, I go in and I stand there and I'm not going to be Judith and I'm not going to be Louisa and I'm not going to be Karen, but who I am is um, I like a bit of humour and a bit of theatricality if I can squeeze it in. What do you reckon? Oh, Athel looked at me and said, good God, all right, well, we'll have a look. Let's see what, what is it, let's see what it is you're thinking of doing, Miss A. And I said, all right. So we started uh, doing one of the songs and Jana said, just do a little, and, and then a back step here. And, and, and so it was just simple stuff, yep. but it was a different, only minuscule, not stepping on their seeker's toes, just giving it a little. The only thing we did out of character was, Bruce was mucking around and he did a Chuck Berry move, you know, the, the backwards yep. thing. Yep. Yep. And I said, Keep it. That goes in one step back, forward, two steps back. That's the song. Yeah. And it was, you know, and Bruce had a solo. I said, do your Chuck Berry bit. And Bruce went, all right. And so we threw these little bits in. Nothing major. Permission to play. Permission to yeah, play. Yeah. And in the end, I, they actually used to, I said, you, you blokes are starting to have fun with this, aren't you? Good oh. And we snuck a few little other bits in and red rubber balls and you know you could do a little jibey thing in the back but it just made it the seekers off of course but with a bit of fun the audience loved it the audience were just like ah uh, 
Now we know who you boys are. Before that, they're very, very rigid yeah. in, in, in their uh, outpouring of personality was as a foursome. Not, they never knew who Athel was. Yes. I said, don't mind him, he's a politician. Yes. All the way rested on, on Judith, I guess, who, yes. who was the connection Absolutely. with the conduit with the Absolutely. audience. Absolutely. Yeah, Judith yeah. was always Judith and the boys. So we made it us. Yeah, yeah. And they, in spite of themselves, had a good time. Yeah. Bruce was looking at me doing his Chuck Berry, saying, geez, Wonkers, you'll pay for this one. But they, they saw the result was the audience got the Seekers, but they got, the, they got to know the Seekers. They knew the boys suddenly became people, not just um, faceless men, if you like. Yeah. And it was a, it had to be different. It used, there's no merit to go in being exactly the same. And in, I, I guess it was partly because I knew I was going to get itchy, probably just standing there singing and saying for for the next song. Yeah. Uh, and and I thought there's more to this, but not not changing the character, but just making them uh, the audience get to know the boys. Yeah. They already knew me, yeah. so it was it was terrific. The people just roared at the end of the show. They just roared, and the boys went past. You know, all right, <laughs> muttered, <laughs> muttered. <laughs> Hearing all those great songs anew. Mm. Now you had a crack at the United States, also, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I did. <sighs> Look, I think I, in, I I never wanted to. It's not my thing. Uh, I I worked with Cosby. Uh, before Cosby's became who we, right. before we knew who Bill was, Bill was great to me. Uh, yeah. Very respectful. Um, very, very much. Uh, one night he, he he went on first. He said, "I'm going to be your opening act tonight." And he went, put me on last. Gave me the biggest uh, build up out there, and then they brought the house down simply because he said. So and then I worked with Roy Clark, country. Picker, yeah. Roy Clark's uh, the legend of country music. He couldn't understand why we were working together in the nicest way. He yeah. said, you are so good, but you're not country. Who put you with me? And I said, I have no idea, Roy. Some agent somewhere. And he said, well, I'm real glad they did. Right. But you, you, you're not, you could be country. Have you ever thought about being country? I said, no. And he said, and he'd get the guitar out and we'd sing some country. He said, oh, you got to sing country. And I said, no, Look, I, like, I like country music, but I'm not going to, I wouldn't want to sing it. Was this in Vegas or on tour? This was in Reno and Tahoe. Right. Mm. Uh, and and it, in one way, it put me, I never wanted to do it again in one way. It's, you, I, the next gig I had was 25 weeks in Vegas with Flip Wilson. I thought, this is a sentence, this is not a gig, this is a sort of a jail sentence, because you, you, your days are all around the place. I like to have a day, I like to see the morning, and you can't, when you're doing shows until two in the morning, you miss oh, the right, morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the last show, the, one, the first show is dead on eight o'clock, the second show is dead on 10 o'clock. So by the time you finish, it's, it's sort of midnight, and then you pack up, you've got to eat something at midnight, yeah. you're having, eggs on toast with Bill Cosby and you think why am I doing this um, and then they said well next one's Fripp Wilson in Vegas I thought oh no 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 I can't go through those dungeons of casinos opening up doors with 
codes ne- and never seeing daylight never seeing yeah. daylight yeah. and i thought oh i said to it i really don't want to do that and he said no i didn't think you would so we passed on that one which caused a bit of a kerfuffle with the agent who was i'm working on my behalf there was a lot of years there when when i said look i've and we'd go to stars houses and the shrub would say night ma'am <laughs> There was somebody in the bushes with a gun guarding these Security. people. Wow. And I said to it, I never want to live with a man sitting under a shrub in my front yard with yeah. a gun saying, night ma'am, I'm not, not going to happen. Because all that was within your reach, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, apparently it was. If you wanted it, yeah. Yeah, apparently it was. But I, it's too much country in me. I said to Ed, I'm sorry, because Ed was all for this. He said, this is, you're going to get your just desserts here because you need to do this. This is great. My agent there said, you've got to do this, Jules. This is, we're nearly there. Vegas would flip. If I get all the right people there and you'll be off. I said, um, I don't think it's me. And he just looked at me and he said, I know it's not. I've been hoping you'd never say that. I thought maybe if we got you on the right gigs, you'd you'd see what we're trying to achieve. And I said, I know what you're trying to achieve, but I'm going to get lost. Me, I'm going to get lost in the middle of all that. And I'm not prepared to do that. I said, I want to have a life. I want to go down to Woolworths and get the groceries and, you know, that sort of stuff. That didn't go down well (laughs) and never spoke to me for years. Years! until finally he was coming out here to do something and he rang up and he said, I understand, I get it now, I know what you're doing, because by that time I had my first child. Right. He said, I know, hmm, I know you're always going to have that first child, weren't you? And he said, yeah, I get it, sorry. And I said, that's all right, um, I, I knew you'd get it one day, but um, for a while there was, he didn't want to know. But it's just not me. That's not my thing. I, I, Roy Clark had it down. He did he'd do his shows, and then he he bunked on his boat, moored his boat, huge thing, moored down at the marina, and you go down there and have coffee with with him, and he'd say, "What are you going to do? You're not going to sing country?" And I said, "No, probably not." And so we just talk about it, and he said, "Yeah, well, you'd be a great country singer." He said, "And, and we're more your people, I think." I said, "You probably are." He was a lovely, lovely man. Um, but it just, I just wanted to come home. I wanted to be on Aussie soil being yeah. who I am. Yeah. So I did. Um, the Ed you speak of is, of course, your husband, mm. Ed, who was your manager mm. for, for, for mm. many, many years. Mm. So it was yeah, pretty much always, a family business. Like, yes, family yeah. business. But he, for a while, didn't understand it, but he did understand it. You know, he said, oh, he said, we're, we're pretty close here. And I said, I know, that's the problem. We're pretty close here. If we were still far off, I might leg it a bit longer, but I said, we're pretty close, I've got to go yeah. before it is. Yeah, yeah. So we did, and he understood. But then he had to take the flag, front-line flag from the American agents and that, saying, you know, we've got this lined up and you can't, you've got to honour it sort of thing. And Ed said, I can't budge her, she's not going anywhere. So it's not you, it's not me, she just doesn't want to do it. And I assume there's never been any regrets. Not a one! Funny about that, isn't it? (laughs) No, I never would have done all those touring gigs with the boys and never would have had that time. Um, Never would have lived here. 
Um, you know, we've been on our little house on the ridge here for 32 years. Never would have lived here. Would have been in some dreadful smoke-ridden American town, probably. Surrounded by huge walls. <laughs> yeah, and, and people in bushes. Yeah. No, it's no. just it, I'm too I'm too country. I can't do it. So, in the end, to be able to do that, you've got to be on your own plane. You have to be know who you are and honour that. So I figured, well, this is the, this is the test. So I, I bailed. Uh, I think your last stage role was Spamalot, Lady of the Lake. <laughs> it was. <laughs> what fun. I love it. Great number. Oh, it was totally insane, yeah. but wonderful. You know, that was, Simon got me into those Mikados and Spamalots and things. Um, I think uh, Mikado was, was probably the one that, was extraordinary because watching David Collins um, do his thing on stage was pretty awesome. I thought, who's this little sprite? And didn't know. And and he was lovely. But halfway through, we, we did Act One, and he thought that was it. And the director, American director, said, well, uh, on Monday we'll, we'll hit Act Two. And David said, Act Two? <laughs> He hadn't turned the page. <laughs> act two! There's an act two! There's more. <laughs> Do you know act two? I said, I have read it. And he said, Christ, I haven't. I don't know about act two. What do I do in act two? So he was up all night during act two. But being who he was, he was he had act two down. By the time he got there, his eyes were crossed and he was exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> he did it. And I watched this little sprite and I thought, they are the moments in this business that that you remember when you come across somebody like that and you work with them closely and he was such an interesting little dude brilliant absolutely brilliant and you had an opportunity then to be the elder and the mentor i did as ferrier did for you and yes Warburton and, in a way yes yeah. i said to him one day i don't think you know how good you are do you what oh Oh, well, now you come to mention it, he said. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't. And, uh, Colin Lane, they, did, they didn't know how good they were and they were right in a different field here. Yeah. But Simon knew. Simon's got this sixth sense for casting. He knows who would be good. Mm. And he'd ring me and say, you know Lane and Woodley? Well, Colin's, and, and I've got this other little fella and he's, he, I think he's going to be marvellous. And I said, well, I don't know any of them, but go for your life. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, but he's a great caster, Simon. He can cast... Uh, he sees things in people that other people don't see. Mm. So, uh, you know, they never ha would have had that chance, and they were well aware. They never would have had that chance if Simon hadn't had the ability to say, oh, God, he'd be good in theatre. Yeah. You know? So that's, you know, lucky them. He was doing a bit of a pounder by doing that. And I, I told him that once. I said, you're being a bit of a Betty Pounder. He said, oh, I'm happy to be a Betty Pounder. Yeah. But um, he was uh, could cast things. And, you know, we'd go and see things together after that. And he'd say, tell you who would have been great in this. And he's always right. Yeah. Somebody from not, not related yes. at all. Maybe from another era. Another or, era, yeah. another genre of our business, another arm of it. Yeah. But, you know, there's a skill. So... We've all been, he and I have been beneficiaries of the pounders who did that too. So he knows what that means 
when he rings somebody and says, listen, this might sound a bit odd to you, but I think you'd be terrific. And it's a wonderful thing to do. And he, he has become a mentor for a lot of people by taking them into a, a realm they didn't think they would be, or perhaps didn't even know about, yeah. and, and realising their full talent. So, oops, excuse me, no, not today. That's Ed. <laughs> And he's probably saying, you don't forget the electrician's coming in a minute, which he is. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah. Do you miss it, though? No. You've been retired for a few years yeah. now. No, I don't miss it. Um, uh, I did everything I wanted to do and more. I stayed longer at the fair. I stayed longer at the fair than I intended to. Um, but finally, I thought, no. Really, you 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 be stretching a fin, you know, my voice is not going to like you. And I was starting to have, a th have to think about uh, notes that I was going to sing. I never had before. I used to just pluck them out of the air anywhere. And when I started to think about it, I thought, no, no, I'm done. When did you know it was time? Was there a particular gig or...? Oh, I think I was uh, in Geelong going to do a morning show and I was warming up and I thought, this is a bit silly, really, you know, at your age. You've done a lot. Do you need to do another one? Not really. No. So after that one, I said to Kevin as we walked off, I think I'm done, Kevy. What? He said, now? I said, yes. And I said to Ed, that's it. And Ed said, OK. And off we drove back to Melbourne. And uh, Kevin gave me my music and he said, Mrs Nat, here's your music. And I said, thanks, Kevy. Thanks for everything. Um, I wish I could go further uh, because I'd be working with you, but I don't want to go further. And he said, no, I get it. Oh, no. I, I, you know, I, I didn't think I'd get this long. So it's just knowing when to leave, as the old song says. And I think I've always had the antenna up. Uh, I've never forgotten the kid who, who dragged up to Berry and sang three songs, and, and I, I knew where the beginning was, and I knew there had to be an end. I was never going to go into the sunset, you know, gasping for air and trying to sing. So when it, when it presented, I thought, ah, this is, the, this is it. This is the moment. Absolutely. And so uh, I happily walked away knowing it was the moment. I knew that I had no doubt. So um, I'm very grateful for what I've been able to uh, be a part of. Uh, it's not, not about achieving. It's not about uh, putting tags on it, saying, oh, yes, I was on the West End, or dear, or whatever. It's not that at all. It's what I learnt from people along the way. I still say to Crocker, God, you were good. You know, you taught me how to do that, you beast. And, and I'll say to Simon, you forced me into that, but, you know, thank you. It was, you, did, you did the good. It was the right thing to do. And those moments, and it was like a stitching a quilt together to say, you know, yeah, no, Barry said that's, that's, that's a better way to do that, so keep that one. And then over here, Pounder said, oh, yeah, no, there's another one. And then somebody else will say something and say, yeah, okay. I was, I was a bit of a, I was a good sponge. I could learn um, because I was a farmer's daughter. I had to have the uh, sponge out because I had to learn from whoever I could learn from. Fortunately, they were all the best of their bunch. So I had very good teachers. And it was um, great fun. Uh, if it ever wasn't going to be fun, that was me out the door. Um, I'm a serious side when it needs to be, but generally um, I enjoy things. So that was that was my criteria. Well, Julie Moncrief Lush, Julie Anthony, thank you for the music. 
Juliet as well. There's another one in there. Oh, another one. <laughs> a trio. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I have all these names. Monkers. Monkers. Miss A. Miss A. Yes, I entered. Oh, yes. yes. Peter Carroll's christened me Miss A. Irene O'Day. Oh dear. Oh dear. Irene O'Day. Irene O'Day. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. That's it's been, thank been you, lovely. Peter. Enjoy it thoroughly. Julie Anthony is the real deal. In my preparation for the conversation, everyone I spoke to told me you're going to love her. Down to earth, genuine, and totally charming. They were not wrong. And I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did in recording it. Though I got the biscuits thrown in. Thank you, Julie Anthony, for the conversation and for gifting us your exquisite voice and extraordinary music and performance. Folks, don't forget that you can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Beneath our radiant sun. Southern Cross will toil.